If you'll join me this morning, our sermon text is Job. We'll begin with chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, and then we'll read all of chapter 42. It's our last sermon in our Job series that's gone seven weeks. Job chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And then we move over to chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, Bildad and Zophar, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer, not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. This is God's word. Job gets his fortune restored. His children, again with descendants that he knows to the fourth generation, 140 years of life after however long he lived before these things happened. This is traditionally why Job is placed in the pre-flood period of of time for the amount of time that he lived. But even the years of his life are a a double blessing as as it appears, 140 years. And then we get that phrase at the very end there, full of days. Job died, an old man, and full of days. And there's uh, another significant Old Testament figure for whom that's also on his epitaph. It's King David. If you go look at First Chronicles chapter 28, you see it said of David, he died at a good age, full of days, 
with riches and honor. And yet, David also knew suffering. The intense family suffering, the suffering of being rejected by Saul and having to live as a fugitive for the years that he did. I was listening recently to a, an interview with Stephen King, famous author, and in the interview, in response to a question, he brought up Job, that he had read the book of Job in the Bible, and he was fascinated by the story, except when he got to the end. Stephen King said, why would you put a happily ever after ending on a story like uh, Job's? This didn't make sense to him. Uh, it was... Um, forced, he thought, and it ruined it for him, ruined the story of Job. But really, the only way to ruin a faith story is for faith to be given up, to experience the worst kinds of things that can happen to us in life from, from a variety of, of considerations and causes, and to say, uh, you know, Lord, this, that's it. I mean, you allowed this thing. I can't follow you anymore. Uh, if you would have not allowed this, prevented that, then, then I would stay with you. But, but no, I can't. A faith story is a story of holding on. I, I mentioned to you in the first message a book I had read by Cameron Cole. He's a, a minister in Birmingham. And his book is called Therefore I Have Hope. And it's written as a faith story about holding on to uh, the Lord when he lost his three-year-old son, also named Cameron, named for him. There's an epilogue in the back of the book, one page, just a few paragraphs, after he and his wife experienced this horrific loss of going into their little boy's room at three years of age, finding him dead in his bed, uh, this is what the rest of the story is. Three months after Cam died, we learned we were unexpectedly pregnant. Getting pregnant during a time of such dark misery was the last thing we intended to do. As the first trimester concluded, we discovered that this new baby was a boy. In mid-November at 1.30 a.m., Lauren nudged me and announced her water had broken. We raced to the hospital. There was no time for an epidural. Our third child and second son, William Hutchins Cole IV, was born 52 minutes after Lauren's water broke, 17 minutes after admission to the hospital. And now this. On November 13th, 2013, we had buried our precious son, Cam. On November 13th, 2014, the one-year anniversary of Cam's funeral, God brought a new life into our family. God is real. God is good. Christ reigns forever. Now Cameron Cole's story is one faith story. Job's story is one faith story. Not all faith stories go like that or like this in Scripture as according to, to outcomes. But a faith story in earnest, regardless of the details or the outcomes, what happens or doesn't happen as life goes on. A faith story in earnest is a faith holding up rather than giving up. And I've said to you before, and this has been something that uh, has entered into my own life, we will not hold on to our faith. 
unless we love God for God. Not for the gifts God gives, not for the blessings God gives. That's marvelous that he does. And he is good to us more than we even know. But we will not ultimately hold on to our faith. I know God holds on to us, but from the perspective of Job, this book is about holding on to him, to God. And we won't do that unless we love God for God. That that's at the heart of of our faith. Some months ago in another sermon, I told you of an interview that uh, made the rounds. It, it went viral as uh, a lot of things do because it was, it was very uh, poignant. It's, it's, it's as you often don't see the particulars involved. It was Anderson Cooper, the interviewer, and Stephen Colbert, the comedian. And Cooper was uh, talking to Colbert about a significant loss in Stephen Colbert's life. When Stephen Colbert was 10, he's the youngest of 11, Catholic family, and his two brothers nearest him and his father were all killed in a plane crash. And as it happens, Anderson Cooper also lost his father when he was 10 years old. And so Cooper and Colbert both have these similar experiences, differing details, but similar experiences of loss. And they discussed how this uh, personal shattering that you can go through, how it, how it forms you. It either destroys you or it, or it forms you. It does a little of both probably, but they were talking about it in the, in the framework of, of how it's formed them. And Colbert, who's a, a, a devout Catholic, uh, goes back to saying, uh, you know, suffering has become part of my worldview. But at one point, Cooper asked Colbert something He'd heard Colbert say to another interviewer, and it had bothered Anderson Cooper when he heard Stephen Colbert say this, and so he brought it up to him. And the thing he'd heard Stephen Colbert say to another interviewer was, Colbert said, I've learned how to love the thing I most wished had not happened. And Cooper is actually emotional when he brings this up. You can see that this it bothers him more than it touches him because he says, do you, you really believe that? That you've learned to love the, the thing that you most wish had, had not happened? And Colbert says, yeah, I really, I really do believe that. And then he credits Tolkien, the writer of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobby. He credits Tolkien, another devout Catholic, with, with that way of looking at things. That if existence is a gift... Uh, if, if living on this earth, our existence as human beings in God's world, if that's a gift from God to exist in this world, then with existence in this world comes suffering. Colbert said it's, it's inescapable. You don't go seeking it. You don't take some deterministic view of it that it's, you know, it's going to happen. So, but, but it is going to happen. And he goes on to say he, he didn't learn it to be grateful for the thing he most wished had not happened to him. He didn't learn that so much as he realized it when he realized what loss suffered had given him. Didn't want the losses, wouldn't want to repeat them, but wouldn't trade what he gained from them in terms of, of the growth as a, as a man and, and with God that he knows he's experienced. You can look at Job 42 cynically it's easy to do as moderns. We're, we're a cynical uh, people 
now uh, in, in this particular cultural context. And, and we can look at what Job gets back at the end. His balance sheet back to black and how, you know. I mean, he's got surplus of blessings. He's got more than he had before materially and in family. And he's, he's got this honor again in his community. And, and we can actually look sideways at this and wonder, well, so, so why did he have to go through all this hard stuff in the first place? I still don't like God doing to him what happened. I, I still don't like God putting him through this. Some will feel that. And yet these gains that Job got at the end and, and lived in for 140 years. I mean, how, how far back does 1880 sound to you? That's 140 years from, uh, from, from uh, behind us. It, it's good that he got all this. That the suffering time was, was, was lifted. It didn't continue on. He didn't die in it. He didn't take the counsel to curse God and die. It, it's good that there were these returns to him. But when you look at Job's life and, and why, we, uh, why we're so impressed with, with Job, it, it's, not because, it, it's not because he, um, he, he returns to his trust when, when God... Uh, brings uh, back it's because we know that Job did not need he didn't he didn't need these things to be returned to him in order to trust God he's going to trust him regardless come what may that's why this series is called come what may what Job really got from his losses was more of God and you don't have to go through loss and deep suffering to get more of God. But the testimony of many throughout uh, history, going all the way back to Job, a, a very early resident of the earth, all the way to the modern time, the testimony of many is that in our sufferings, our trials, we do get more of God. Doesn't mean we want the trials. Doesn't mean we like the sufferings. Doesn't mean we, we would go seeking them. Uh, we won't, but we we get more of God, and, and what Job ends up showing in his losses was that he loved God for God. St Satan's strategy was completely defeated. Satan's strategy was, hey, God, show him a bad time, and he'll curse you because he's only in it for himself. Remember the, the hedge back in the early chapters? You put a hedge around his life. Of course he trusts you. Of course he follows you. Look at all this good stuff he's got. <laughs> Take that away. If his faith isn't blessed, he'll dump it. Satan, having observed humanity for centuries now, feels like that's usually going to be a pretty good bet for him. But as I've been saying each week, the story Job tells is a faith story in earnest. The possibility of remaining faithful to God when every human benefit, every blessing, every self-interested prop that we depend on to feel like God has got this and we're going to be okay and, and, and God is in charge and I feel good about my relationship. When all of that goes away, is it still possible to trust him for himself? And Job says, yeah, it's possible. It's hard. 
but it's possible. See, if faith is about self-interest, it's about getting what you want, having your life just so, and, and nobody, including God, can move uh, the pieces around on you. If that's what faith is about, then you'll worship God only so long as he protects you, only so long as uh, he keeps you uh, blessed and happy and healthy and, and all of it and, and keeps, keeps from you all, all those things you most wish wouldn't happen. But see, our, our faith is going to wilt under every blaring sun if that's your faith, if it's fair weather, if it, if it cannot stand the storm but washes away. It's fair weather. Not Job's. It wasn't fair weather faith. Although Job didn't know. I mean, you, you see it in the text. Job didn't know. He didn't anticipate uh, verse 12 that the latter days of Job would be more blessed than the beginning days he didn't know that was coming not when he's sitting on the ash pile with his scraped sores he doesn't know that uh, he's going to live a 140 more years of blessing wealth and honor and seeing his son's sons his daughter's all the way through to the fourth generation. It's incredible. Doubly blessed. That's the whole point of all the numbers in the, uh, in the end of the text here. He's, he's doubly and triply blessed. Job didn't know these things would come back. But here's the marvel. Job didn't need them to come back in order to trust God. It's not like Job had two lives. He had this one life filled with great blessing and exaltation by God. And, and no, he, he has one life filled with great blessing and exaltation by God, but also great suffering and loss that God sent through the agency of Satan. The, uh, at the end of verse 11, all the evil the Lord had brought upon him through the agency of Satan, allowing the evil one to do what he does. And yes, there is, there is the story within the story of God holding on to Job, not just Job holding on to God. We know from the early chapters, also from the late ones here, that Job was actually being exalted by God, not spurned or punished. He never got an explanation why he had to suffer what he did, he wants that, but realizes at the end he's not going to get it and, and he doesn't really need it. He does get vindication and he has served, his uh, story has served thousands of years since he died, millions of people since he died, an old man full of days. But I do want to emphasize that in the context of this book, the greater emphasis is on Job holding on to God. Yes, God's got us. God's going to see us through. God is never going to let go. God is there even when our faith is feckless and weak, as well as when it's strong. Though we are faithless, he yet remains faithful. God holds on to us. We're right to put the emphasis on his greater work for us. But in the context of Job, the greater emphasis in Job is Job holding on to God. 
So much so that God let his reputation ride on Job, on the response of one man. And God would do so again with Jesus, that time for all time. But thinking back on how this story started, now from the perspective of the end where we are, God let his reputation ride on the response of one man, Job. God says to Satan, take everything he has, save his life, and watch what he does. So long as he has breath, he won't curse me. As you're sure he will, go ahead and find out for yourself. He'll lament, he'll grieve his misfortunes, he'll argue his ways to my face vehemently, but he will yet trust me. And what's this tell us? What's our takeaways? This tells us our response to God matters. Yes, God's got us. God's is the greater work. God holds us for all time. When we are faithless, he is yet faithful. Yes, absolute truth. And yet, we have a response to make. And the response we make matters. We see that in Job's story. It matters that our faith holds on. Job held on his faith, come what may. I saw a um, thing this week online uh, that said that um, ex-evangelicals, that's kind of the, uh, the new title for deconversion uh, figures, um, former Christians, ex-evangelicals, they, the, the thing I saw was a tweet, uh, said ex-evangelicals make the worst atheists. And what the tweeter was, was the point the tweeter was trying to make is that ex-evangelicals become more evangelistic in unbelief than they were ever in belief. Now we're lumping here and making, I'm making uh, broad sweeping categories, there are exceptions, but you know, a lot of them, you know, evangelicals are real good at branding and they just rebrand. Uh, they start deconversion podcasts, you know, they, um, they, they get these, they have these bones to pick with evangelical subculture and, and they go on and, and do that. And, and I'm not picking at them. Lord knows the, the bridges to these folks have been burned enough, but it does seem a lot of them want so badly for everyone to know they are completely justified in giving up their faith due to what really bugs them about the church, what soured them about God, what uh, overly impinges on their creative growth, you know. But when they drop out of the faith, the world doesn't get better. The better world they want doesn't emerge from letting go of God, giving up on God, come what may, our faith response matters. I think Philip Yancey brings this out beautifully in his book, The Bible Jesus Read. He's got a whole chapter on Job, uh, which I found very um, helpful in preparing sermons in this series. He brings this idea home that our faith response matters. A little bit of an extended quote here from Philip Yancey. In exaggerated form, Job affirms that for whatever reason, 
God has given individual human beings a significant role to play in remaking a spoiled planet. When a pastor goes to prison for his peaceful protest against injustice. When a social worker moves into an urban ghetto in order to rebuild community from the ground up. When a couple refuses to give up on a difficult marriage. When a parent waits with undying hope and forgiveness for the return of an estranged child. When a son or daughter chooses to care for a terminally ill parent rather than investigate euthanasia. When a young professional resists mounting temptations toward wealth and success. In all these sufferings, large and small, there is the assurance of a deeper level of meaning. Of a sharing in Christ's own redemptive victory. No one has expressed the pain and unfairness of this world any better than Job. Yet, behind those words of anguish lies a darkly shining truth. Job and you and I can, through obedience, join the struggle to reverse the suffering. Job paints the drama of faith in its starkest form. The best man on earth suffered the worst with no sign of encouragement or comfort from God. The fact that Job continued to trust God against all odds mattered. It mattered for him, it mattered for us, and it mattered for God. In God's speech, describing the wonders of his natural creation, clearly the wonder of creation that impressed God most was Job himself. With this in mind, that our faith response matters. Let me cite two examples from the texts as we have them this morning. And that'll be the sermon. One example of why our faith response matters is evidenced in the restorative power of forgiveness. Which we need to hold on to faith in God to be able to do. To even be able to really get a, a start on forgiving requires that. And then the other example of how our faith response matters is in the reversal of self-justification. So we've got here in the text I read, chapter 40 and chapter 42, we've got the restorative power of forgiveness. That'll be our first point, takeaway. And then we've got the reversal of self-justification. So first, the restorative power of forgiveness. This takes us in to chapter 42, verses 7 through 8. Where God says, verse 7, to the friends, my anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Yes, Job lamented, he complained, he argued, but he had it right in that he knew how to take all of that to me. And y'all just talked about me, and what you said about me isn't right, and so I'm angry. And there are reasons why uh, the anger of God would be stoked. I, I don't know, by the way, if, if Job's friends and he were ever close again, but I do know because the text says, verses 8 and 9, that they were to make offerings, the friends, not to Job, but with Job to make offerings for themselves so that God would forgive them. And God says, in response to Job's prayers for you, I will, I will do that. It can be tricky dealing with hard feelings. So I, I don't know if the friends and Job got close again after this happens in 42, 7 through 9. Uh, I, I, forgiveness doesn't require a rekindling of closeness. But when I say our faith response matters, it's because faith ultimately gives God what he asks for. 
So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So they all do what, what the Lord says. And that's what faith does. That's why our faith response matters. Faith gives God what he wants, what he asks for. Job does here what he was directed by God to do. Regardless of his personal feelings about it, which we've seen in black and white in the preceding chapters, how he felt about his friends, how he felt about his suffering. But what he's asked to do here is not just pray for the friends. Implied is that he's going to have to forgive them. The praying is a means to that. The praying is for that, for the friends to be restored, to right fellowship with God and right fellowship with Job. God was going to forgive them, the friends, through Job interceding on their behalf. But the intercessor, the mediator, think this out. Wouldn't the intercessor, wouldn't the mediator need to apply the same grace? Yeah, he would have to. That's the point of praying for them this way. Writer Anne Lamott has said, uh, if the earth is forgiveness school, family is your postdoctoral fellowship. In other words, where we go to work at learning to forgive is often with those closest to us. Just because they're closest. Because they're closest means they have more opportunity to hurt us. Job's friends have been like family to him, these three guys. I mean, close enough that they were the first responders. You've got first responders, you know, emergency services. And then when you go through something difficult in your life, you've got your first responder friends and family members. And these guys showed up. And for seven days, we recall, they grieved with him and his losses sat quietly with him and, and commiserated and showed empathy. And then they started to needle him. They needed to judge Job as somehow deserving of the things they, they su he suffered. And they hurt him in that. They got, Job, they got God wrong, God says. You got me wrong and you hurt Job. So Job, by way of praying for them, will himself work on forgiving them, the restorative power of forgiveness. This is why our faith response matters. What did he have to forgive? Three things. He had to forgive their moralism. He had to forgive their intellectualism. He had to forgive their fundamentalism. Each and all are aspects of self-righteousness. Eliphaz, the first friend, He's the fundamentalist, which can mean a lot of things. But here in Job's story, it means he uses other people's misfortune to validate his opinions and his dogmas. Job is suffering as an evidence of his sin. Nothing could be plainer. End of story. Change my mind. We do that a lot of us, don't we? We, we make snap judgments based on what we know we know, so we don't need to see it differently. It's so hard to reason, to even reason with fundamentalism. Because it's so sure it's got the angle. And then Bildad, the second friend, he's guilty of the intellectualism. For Bildad, God is the most important part of existence and Job should be careful not to blaspheme or deny him. And that's true, you know, it's true.
But intellectualism leaves us dry because what intellectualism does, it thinks great thoughts of God, thinks great thoughts about God, but it never really connects to on the hard ground realities of real flesh and blood, what we go through. Intellectualism is dismissive. I mean, evangelicalism, we've got our problems with anti-intellectualism, but then we've got the other pole of intellectualism, which is dismissive of the human element in order to magnify God. And so you've got this sense of only God matters, you don't. And you know, that's true from certain, a certain angle. It's not that that's totally false. It's just not the whole truth and nothing but, because God has gone to great lengths to show us, to tell us we matter to him and that our faith response matters to him. So you've got Eliphaz, the fundamentalist. You've got Bildad, the intellectualist. And then Zophar, he's our moralist. He's the guy who essentially told Job, why are you complaining? You deserve a lot worse. Moralists are scolders and shamers. They proliferate online. I mean, that... Our online mediums are moralistic, uh, left and right bents both, so much moralism in social media space, a very self-righteous medium. If you're going to be online in those spaces, you need to recognize it is a very self-righteous medium. To Zophar, the world is, it, it, it's got it, to be cleaned up, it's got to be cleared up. And he knows the right solution to put in the spray bottle. But then in applying the spray and, and trying to, to rub the dirt off, he puts so much pressure on it that he takes the finish off. That's what moralists do. It's not that they're wrong about what God expects. It's that they don't know how to get the dirt off without also getting the finish off. And they damage, they damage, they damage. Because they scold and they shame. Job's forgiveness would not make the fundamentalism and the intellectualism and the moralism he suffered right. They're wrongs. They're not okay. They damage. And notice they stoke God to anger. Verse 7. Why? Because they promote divisions and discord among his people. And he's on record saying he hates that. And yet those kinds of wrongs, fundamentalism and intellectualism and moralism, they're so insidious because they feel so right. <laughs> I think of the old Alabama song, mmm, feels so right. Fundamentalism, intellectualism, moralism, the wrongs of Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar against Job, they make you feel so right though. And you know, if you've been hurt, by one of these characters, if, if you've been wronged by the one who thinks himself so right, it, it can be really hard to forgive that. Because other kinds of wrongs against us don't carry the same kind of self-assuredness that like when we're being wronged by fundamentalism and moralism and intellectualism, they're particularly irritating. It's easier to forgive a mistake someone makes. Hey, I got that wrong, I'm sorry. I made a snap judgment. Can you forgive me? It's, it's harder to forgive somebody who purposefully mistakes you for something that you're not, but the fundamentalist, the moralist wants to insist that you are. They, they label, they libel. 
Yes, forgiveness is hard. You have to work at it. You think you've forgiven someone and then you realize you have more work to do. God is patient. The Lord helps us in ways we can detect and other ways we can't. But what would be the point of God asking us to do things we don't need him to do? I can't even make a start at forgiving unless I look to God first, which is the very thing prayer does. He tells Job, pray for your friends. They're going to make sacrifices and you're going to pray for them. And in that prayer, Job is turned to God who has every resource for us to be able to do what he wants, which is what faith will do. Gives God what he wants. Now, the second example from our text of how our faith response matters is the reversal of self-justification. This will take two minutes and we'll be done. I started the reading this morning in chapter 40, verse 6 through 8, because this is where we see it. God says to Job, look back at chapter 40, verse 8. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? Do you know what he's saying? How dare you, Job? Must I be condemned for you to be justified? Must I be wrong for you to be right? Job's been rehearsing for his friends and for God how righteous he is, how undeserving of the troubles that afflicted him. And you know, God isn't gentle with, with Job in reply, but there is intimacy here. God puts a heavy hand on his servant Job, whom he loves and, 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 and is, can, can put his own reputation on. But it's tough love. He comes back at Job and says, do you really want to put me in the wrong to assert how righteous you are? Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? And you know what the immediate answer is in Job's context? No, no way. That's why he says, verse 6 in, verse, in chapter 42, verse 6, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. How dare I do that, Lord? You're right. I've, I've been trying to justify myself at your expense. What was I thinking? And so Job's repentance will reverse that, the need to self-justify, because Job now sees it's wrong to do that. God has his reasons, and I have to leave those with him. So I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't do it, Lord, he says in chapter 42. I, I won't put you in the wrong. I, I, won't, I won't condemn you so that I may be in the right. But then you go thousands of years later, and what does the gospel tell us? Wow. God must be condemned for us to be justified before him. God enters his own complaint from back in Job at the cross and says, I, I will be condemned in your place so that you can be in the right. Unless Jesus goes to the cross, isn't this what we believe? Unless Jesus goes to the cross and is condemned, neither you nor I can be justified, which is to be declared righteous. God holding nothing over us, nothing against us anymore. God comes to Job and it's terrible in effect. He speaks to him out of the whirlwind, the storm, it blowback. 61 questions he can't answer. But he's a God of wonders as well, wonderful, and that he would, it, it was in his counsels, his purposes. Even back when he made the world, he knew he would enter the world personally, God the Son, to satisfy his justice regarding our sin, reconcile us in love back to himself through a divine act of self-sacrifice. It's the reversal of self-justification. This is why your faith response matters. God says to Job, 
Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Job says, no way. But when Jesus comes, it's for the very reason that he comes. Job abandons his self-justification project due to God's confrontation. We abandon our self-justification projects because God did the very thing that we needed him to do on our behalf. Condemned himself with our sin that we might be justified. How do you know you love the Lord? There's a lot of ways. It's not one answer to that question. But one way you know is you don't need anything other than Jesus to trust him. He doesn't have to meet your laundry list. God gave back to Job incredibly. He got new family, new belongings, new holdings, new honor. But the greatest gift, the greatest gift God can give is the gift of taking our deserved condemnation upon himself. In our place, taking our wrongs to make us right, his life for ours. And that puts a fullness into the fullness of our days that come what may, Regardless of what happens, it is possible to trust him. Father, we ask that you would uh, help us to do that. Lord, there is um, so much that is difficult in the world as we live it. Our lives have their frustrating points, their hard places, places where we continue to cry out to you for change and for help. We keep looking to you. We keep asking you, Lord, because we know you can. But Lord, even if you don't, you're still, you're still worthy of our trust because of your grace, because you put yourself in the way of our condemnation so that we could have life, so that we could be put in the right. And we thank you for that. We thank you for how Job's life testifies to that deeper meaning in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.